Hi everyone, it's Vera from the hit podcast, Dady Ladies, the podcast you're listening to at this moment. Back in March, we chose this episode's book, Love in the Time of Cholera. It's now June, and we are in the middle of an international Black Lives Matter movement, protesting police brutality against Black people. Because this country has a pretty shitty track record with how it treats its minorities. And unfortunately, so does this book. It's a little thing I like to call a racism surprise. Like when you're watching a cute old Disney cartoon, and all of a sudden there's a gong. And then Chip and Dale have buck teeth and slanty eyes for some reason. Well, this book has dog-eating Chinamen, and serpent-eyed mulattas, and self-effacing black women, and it's the cherry on top of a misogyny sundae. Friends, it was a real bummer. But this book wasn't written in the 1800s. We were nine years old when it came out. Which brings us back to why the BLM movement is so important right now. There are a million ways to support it, but if you'd like to see some that Barbara and I are especially fond of, we invite you to visit our website at datyladies.com or our Instagram at datyladies. Thank you. And now, Daty Ladies! The book club of love. Hi, Barbara Ann. Welcome to episode five of JD Ladies. We've chosen Love in the Time of Cholera for this one, uh, a fiction book. We haven't done that before. A fiction book. I think that's called a novel, right? Well, you, you're the book. one who got a, a literature degree, right? Uh, modern literature. Modern literature. So yes, it's a fiction book. Um, <laughs> before we jump into the episode, though, here's my thought. Is this a twin site? It is a twin site. Well, sort of. It is. Hmm. Let me just say it, and then you tell me. I think it qualifies. Sort of. It no, it doesn't. Because a twin site is <laughs> a twin site is a reflection upon our last episode. We did some twin interviews. Oh, yeah. I have one very quick twin site. Actually, I laughed when I listened to this. Um, I did. I was talking about what I put up on my profile, and I said I didn't mention anything about having motherfucking triplets uh-huh. because I didn't feel comfortable. And wasn't that hilarious that I said that? Because what I didn't feel comfortable with was maybe nobody replying to my profile. That's what I didn't feel comfortable about. What? I know. Dudes um, on, an, on an app looking to hook up were not interested in a mommy with three babies? It was the equivalent of, you know, photographing yourself from the neck up. <laughs> Choosing your high school picture? Maybe you're seeing yeah, a portrait. Exactly. Hey, here, I have a twin side, a real <laughs> quick one. I've noticed that I say guys a lot and I don't mean to be sounding heteronormative. Just like just then, because as you know, it was not just about dudes. I actually thought that ladies would be less inclined to reply or seek me out because of that. That's just my own awful stereotype. Yeah. Because as you and I both know from watching Dead to Me, <laughs> there, there's at least one lesbian character out there who wants to adopt. Yes. Okay. Well, that, but that's not what I want to talk about. What, why don't we start off the show with something extremely positive? And I thought, why don't we talk about, I could, I never get tired of hearing the story of how you and your husband first got together. Would you like to share something extremely personal and sweet to start our show off with? I, uh, Barbara, I would love to. Um, I was with my boyfriend who I've referenced probably about a thousand times already in earlier episodes, Marlon, an older gentleman. And we were going through probably our first rough patch Um, where he just didn't want to talk to me anymore. And my twin sister, Barbara, that's you. 
said, you know what, why don't I take you out for the night? We'll go to this party and then we're going to go to a comedy club to see a band called the Mash Notes. So we were watching this comedy show with Greg Proops and Harlan Williams and some other people. And all of a sudden, this skinny guy takes the stage and he starts his comedy and he tells jokes about cats throwing up and pooping and marijuana and probably a half dozen other subjects that I absolutely hated. (laughs) But I remembered his name. And then my boyfriend started talking to me again and I sort of forgot what had happened. Flash forward to, we started going to Largo on um, Fairfax to see comedy. And there's like Karen Kilgariff and Patton Oswalt and Greg Barrett and all those peeps. And Blank Patch. And one day you, Barbara, called me and you said, I got to tell you a joke that I saw Blaine do last night. And the joke was, do you remember what it was? He compared people driving around town blasting Shaw Day to the coolness of, say, somebody driving around blasting (laughs) on top of spaghetti from their car. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I need to know more about this fellow. (laughs) I actually felt, I felt this weird little twinge of, I don't, I don't want to say that I fell in love. I can't say that because I didn't know him. That's creepy. You don't fall in love with a comedian because you heard a joke that's funny. Oh, a you lot know? of people do. <laughs> no, you don't. You become a stalker or a weirdo with that person. Oh, yeah, that's a different <laughs> Anyway, so it piqued my interest. And so you and I started going a little bit more to comedy clubs. And uh, at one of these times, we saw a flyer for a show called White Trash Winslotto. It was Andy Preboy and Rita Dalbert. Rita Dalbert is one of the producers of Lucha Vavoom. And so you and I went to the show and Blaine saw us and he said, uh-oh, trouble, as he made his way to the stage. <laughs> so at that show, we found out that he and Rita were in a band called Buxotics that were playing. <laughs> so then we went to see them. So the Buxotics were playing and we, we talked to Blaine a little bit afterwards. And then uh, we saw a flyer for another Buxotics show. So the next show came and we went and the Buxotics never showed up. And then I, I, I can pick it up from here. Maybe the next week, I happened to be at Spaceland watching a show, and I saw Blaine in the audience. And I said, come on, Sam, smoke with me. And I was like, hey, that was really disappointing. We went to go see you perform. And he said, okay, yeah, ask me why. And so I did. And he said, my dad died. Mm-hmm. But I do remember that I made sure he knew what your name was that night. Flash forward. Things were going straight down the shitter with Marlon. Mm-hmm. Um, he fucking bailed on me one more time. You and I went to Comic-Con for the weekend and I realized it's over. So I came back and I broke up with him in the nicest way I could. I've told that story before. And I, uh, went to Largo with you. We couldn't get in because we didn't have tickets. So we went next door to a bar. And then after the show, Blaine came over and what happened then? Take it away, Barbara. I think we were all outside because, because at that point, Blaine and I were old friends because we stood outside of Spaceland for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I took his hand and I said, hey, take her hand. And so the little um, twin Blaine chain traipsed inside and then I just <laughs> broke away and the two of you floated off to heaven. Yeah, we had a, a conversation, a big long conversation and then you guys were ready to leave and I was like, okay, bye. I've never in my life done that. <laughs> Never. And so we continued talking and then I think he walked to my car or something like that and we exchanged phone numbers. And that was a Monday and then the Thursday we had our first date. And that was in July of 2000. So yeah, it's going to be 20 years. Aww. All right. 
we're reviewing Love in the Time of Cholera because... I thought it would be a fun departure from what we usually do. Have you read this before? Nope. But I remember you really loving 100 Years of Solitude. And in the back of my head, I just knew that Gabriel... Garcia Marquez is highly regarded. This book has love, the word love in the title, and has the word cholera in the title. This is a podcast about love that's taking place in the middle of a pandemic. So I thought it would be the perfect thing, the perfect departure. Well, I guess we should just come right out and say that we didn't really appreciate this book. But we but we did, as in every book we read, including Why Men Love Bitches, we find the positives. So we're yeah. definitely going to talk about the positives. But I did have kind of an analogy I'd like to share about what reading this book made me feel, given what you just said about, I really loved 100 Years of Solitude. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, something else by this guy would be good too. And so... When I was single before the kids, you know, I was always kind of like, I was just so, I found myself so curious about people, just always kind of wondering like, would that person be a good partner? Would they, I just found everyone so interesting because I was in that place. I was in that open place where, you know, you have to be open to opportunity and, you know what I mean? Have you? Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of these instances was like, there's this film society run by these dudes. And uh, actually, I didn't know if it was run by men or women or whatever, but, you know, there's one kind of figurehead. And he would talk before the screenings. And I just thought, like, here's someone who really has a vision for, like, bringing communities together and showing these amazing films. And he just seems so humble and, like, kind. And, you know, he seems like the kind of person that, like, is driven and passionate. And he just stood out as somebody like that. Mm-hmm. I never approached him or talked to him or anything like that. And then I found out, well, the whole society got shut down because of an anonymous emails that went out about the widespread toxicity in the workplace, the sexual harassment, the misogyny, like, and then detailed stories came out that were just like these repugnant, just poison. And it totally um, took away from any of the charm or any of like my faith in what they were doing. And I f- you know, it just aside from the personal disappointment and like going, oh fuck, my my picker is broke. <laughs> That's what I like. It's a disillusionment, and you know, I feel the same way about Gabo as he's fucking known. You dug that up, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is fucking go- right? Gabo. Gabo, Gabo or Gabo? Whatever. Yeah. But like, you know, aside from disappointing me personally, like, there's what everyone's fucking disappointed with you now. These these film bros, like, now you're just because you couldn't fucking, and then go to see a therapist and then, and then in your pants and then, you know what I mean? And now I don't know what to do with hundred years of solitude. Do I throw it out a window? Do I like, no. what do I do? Signed Phoebe. I don't know. I mean, I mean, we could talk a little bit about that. Also. So my theory behind why he wrote this book is he just wanted to describe fucking a ton of ladies. He'd won a nice prize for one of his other books and he thought he had license to do this. Ugh. Take it, Vera. Um, did you ever watch Extras? Yeah. Um, do you remember when uh, Ricky Gervais, I forget his character's name, but he finally talks to Patrick Stewart and Patrick Stewart has an idea for a, a series <laughs> and everything? I we do, but go ahead. <laughs> and the punchline of every scene is that like the girl's skirt blows up and you can just see everything. <laughs> It's just an old man writing what he wants to write because he got his Nobel Prize and now he's going, fuck it. Um, he's still a great writer. I mean, he has a way with words that's phenomenal. You know? Especially especially when he's describing in graphic detail how unattractive women are after they pass the age of 30. <laughs> Let me read one little thing, and this is the only thing we noticed. You and I had like this dawning revelation that he was very misogynistic against older women. So how about this? 
he dared to explore her withered neck with his fingertips. Her bosom armored in metal stays, her hips with their decaying bones, her thighs with their aging veins. So this is a description of the main female character, Fermina Daza, probably through the eyes of her lover, Florentino Aritza. Um, they're both like in their 70s at this point. So, and, so let's just compare that to her version of him. She was pleased to see him in the light, just as she had imagined him in the darkness. An ageless man with dark skin that was as shiny and tight as an open umbrella with no hair except for a few limp strands. And that's, that's not an isolated example. That's the way women are described. It doesn't matter if they're 30 or 40 or 70. They're all described with like mean eyes or she was 50 and looked it, you know, like that type of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, okay, so moving on. We've established okay. that, right? So we're not going to harp on that too much. We're going to talk about the relationships. So the very basic story is there are these two people, Fermina and Florentino, who see each other for the first time as teenagers. Uh, So he walks by Fermina during her reading lesson. And the description is, the lesson was not interrupted, but the girl raised her eyes to see who was passing by the window. And that casual glance was the beginning of a cataclysm of love that still had not ended half a century later. She falls in love with him too, but they don't end up together. She ends up marrying this doctor and they're married forever and ever and ever. And while they're married, Florentino just fucks his way around their, <laughs> their shitty little town, just has a lot of sex, and we get to hear all about it. And then they end up together at the very end. But there's a, very, there's a pivotal moment where, so they're like, they're going back and forth with all these letters, um, Fermina and Florentino. And then she's sent away at a certain point, and she comes back after she's, you know, had all these experiences. And he comes up behind her in a market, and she just turns around and is like, uh, nah, nah. <laughs> Here's a description of that. She turned her head and saw a hand's breath from her eyes, those other glacial eyes, that livid face, those lips petrified with fear, just as she had seen them in the crowd at midnight mass the first time he was so close to her. But now, instead of the commotion of love, she felt the abyss of disenchantment. In an instant, the magnitude of her own mistake was revealed to her. Florentino Arista smiled, tried to say something, tried to follow her, but she erased him from her life with a wave of her hand. Uh, ne, please, she said to him. <laughs> Forget it. To me, that's the most honest moment in the book. Yeah. Um, did that? Have you ever had a, a thing where you've had like a crush on someone and you couldn't stop thinking about them for ever and ever and ever, and then you finally interact with them, and then you go, uh, forget it. Yeah, because crushes are all about writing what that person is in your head, making up who that person is. Marquez uses the word illusion, you know, and it is illusion. Like you can, sure, you can learn a lot of stuff about people through letters. You can come up with an idea about what they're like, but until you're actually with that person and conversing with that person and in their presence, you don't know that person, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing um, watching a comedian talk, you know? You could love what they have to say and they're really funny and everything, but until you actually talk to that person and have a conversation... You don't know that person. And you're just projecting what you're projecting, what you'd like. Absolutely. To yeah. So he kind of, he seduced her with these letters, but then in person, he was just a fucking weirdo. Well, he had a livid face and glacial eyes and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. This reminded me of the first, the first kiss, the French kiss I ever had. It was um, with a guy who I'd had a crush on for over a year in junior high school. Just, I thought about him nonstop and I don't, to this day, I'm not sure why, but there's something about him. Um, it was his mullet. It was definitely his mullet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he was very smart. I knew that. And very, he was an oddball. Yeah. He was a little bit older than me. I don't know. Like, but I finally got him over to visit me one summer and everything, like the, the moment that should have been so 
incredible kissing him. I mean, I don't know. Should it have been incredible? Is, is any first French kiss a good one? No. Or an experience. My, I broke up with my first boyfriend that I actually talked about in the Mortified Guide. We broke up specifically because I did not want a, a second French kiss from him. <laughs> but you can't say that, right? No, I couldn't. It was easier to break up with him than have his tongue in my mouth again. Ugh. <laughs> it was more enjoyable. <laughs> the guy I kissed, I don't know how we maneuvered this. Maybe he said he had to use the restroom or something because I made a beeline into an open plan kitchen and dry heaved into the sink <laughs> and he didn't see it Aww. or did he I don't know but we weren't it was not like we were dating and you know what who says that we did any better on our ends you know of it takes course two, it takes two to French kiss <laughs> uh, so hey guys if you've had a really awful French kiss write us in the comments below <laughs> you had a great first French kiss you're lying you're li you're absolutely lying yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, well, that, so that's that was to me one of the most authentic moments of actually being faced with this thing that you built up in your head and then having to let it go. Did he let it go? Fuck no, he didn't. He held nope. on to that, which is another important point I want to make in comparing this um, epic love story that lasts for five decades on his fucking part, not hers. Um, that that magic moment is needs to be reciprocal. By definition, that falling in love moment is both people feel yes. that way and they have that energy together. So if you have all those really strong feelings about someone and they're not reciprocated, you're on your own, bud. That's the uh, separation between stalker and true love. And this, this book is about a stalker. Yeah, it's most definitely about a stalker. It's not like he stays celibate for five decades. He fucks exactly 622 women in between. <laughs> keeps, keeps a little log, apparently. And then... So there's a couple relationships in this book. The the marriage one, 50 years of marriage between Juvental and Fermina. Um, there's there's some stuff I could relate to in that. I'm only 20 years in. Well, there's some stuff I could relate to and some stuff I couldn't. Like they went on two-year honeymoon uh. and that and every, to like Paris. And she came back with, like she, there's a list of what she brought back. It's like 11 trunks worth of crap. You know, like they went over there and they had a great time for two years. I like that. You know, and then they come back and they move in with his mother-in-law and it's like the honeymoon is literally over. Okay. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then they, they have to sort of, she's not having it and they sort of have to recommit to like bringing love into their marriage. I thought that was pretty realistic. Like you can't, you're not going to be on your honeymoon forever. And things are going to get a little dull and a little negative in the marriage sometimes because it's two completely different people that are trying to make one life work. So what's your experience with recommitting in a long relationship with somebody? Um, I guess not relying completely on an, another person for happiness, but bringing happiness to your relationship. You're kind of responsible for that. But yeah, it's marriages, especially long marriages. Okay, I think of long marriages, like when two people have already had experiences, like you change so much and so much happens. I would think you'd have to continuously adjust and be open to your evolution as people. You would. And shit comes up and if you don't let it break you like some stuff you just have to like I think of it like this like you, there's some crap that will come up in your marriage and you just sort of have to like put it into a shoebox and put the shoebox in your closet because there's some stuff that as two completely different individuals you're never going to be able to agree on 100% mm. when I think of really long marriages that started when you're like teenagers it's not just a shoebox full of stuff that maybe you disagree on but there's like a secret door in the back of the closet <laughs> <laughs> I'm never surprised now when I talk to a husband or wife who's been with their spouse since their teenage years. If somebody tells me that 
on the side. They have like furry sex. Huh? <laughs> furry sex and their furry cult. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because you've had no other experience outside of your relationship. Of course you're going to want to do something else. I think that's really hard to be with to be with one person since you were a kid. Like especially if you if you've been with somebody for decades, you're not the same person you were when you're 17 or 18? Well, I have had the experience of being like, maybe putting some aspects of my personality aside to please somebody and Mm -hmm. then finding our footing and then realizing, oh, I can't, this stuff has to be integrated. And then if it's not accepted because it feels threatening, then those thoughts become even more, they take over, they get more important, they get distorted. Yeah. They help breed resentment. And, um, yeah, so I understand that part of it. You've yes. got to be yourself. Everyone's got to be their, them, them own selves. Yeah. Know? And then, but them own selves is evolutionizing throughout the decades, throughout the decades. I guess it requires being able to keep each other abreast of where you are. I, I tend to tell someone very emphatically, it's very difficult for me to tell someone what I need. And then if it's not heard, maybe for like three or four times, then I take it underground. Yeah, but this is the other thing about relationships that are like decades long. I think it's worn as a badge of honor. Like I say, I've been with my husband for 20 years, but it's been 20 years of me completely recognizing that we have to keep working and moving and changing and all that kind of stuff. It's hard, you know? And so when people tell me that they've been in a relationship for like 20, 30 years, unless they've done that work too, like I kind of wonder like, why? Like you don't get a, this isn't like the 1950s and you have never left your hometown. I don't know. It seems like it's a bragging right sometimes. My favorite story of someone bragging about being with their wife for 40 or 50 years or whatever it was, was I went to go see Roger Daltrey at his book signing. Um, He was interviewed by Judd Apatow. And right towards the end, he gave a shout out to his wife of however many decades. And of, of his own prompting, he goes, he wasn't always faithful to her and they had a deal when I'm out of town, I'm out of town, but those ladies mean nothing. And then I come home and I'm with you. And I thought it was so that number one, that reminded me of our parents generation, everyone that they would hang out with in England. And uh. um, just <laughs> that's just the way it is. And it will always be. And there's something I think kind of special about that. But I just love that he, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but it was like, why be ashamed of this? Obviously he was a fucking rock star. Um, <laughs> in the 70s, it. 60s and 70s. Yeah, you can brag about how you've been with your wife for 40 or 50 years. You'd be a schmuck to like then go, and I was completely faithful the entire time. I have respect he, for that. I do too. It was, it, I really appreciated that. that. But that's an agreement that they had, you know? I'm sure she didn't love it. And I'm sure if she fucked around, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they had that mutual agreement, but that's a whole other thing. But, you know, I don't know. I just like, I, uh, yes, respect for people who acknowledge that if that's the way your marriage needs to work, then that's <laughs> fine too, as long as you're honest. Exactly. Yeah. If you lie, then then no one, no one is happy on either side, really. So I think what my basic point is, is um, couples who have been together since you're teenagers, if you have some crazy ass stories you want to tell me, I will be so understanding and I will really want to hear them because I'm just intrigued by that. I'm intrigued because I'm like, damn, I love to hear how people take a concept like marriage that worked really well, like in the 1800s, you know, right. like when you, when your father um, hooked you up with like the best turnip farmer. You, where you were definitely worth five goats. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you had 14 children and there's nothing else you're going to do, but be with this feller until you reach the ripe old age of 38 and drop dead. Mm-hmm. I love to hear how that concept is 
playing out in the year 2020 and how you're just going for it. I want to hear, I want to hear about those 50 year marriages. So please get in touch. And you know what? If they're all adulteries, it's not boring. <laughs> Let's hear about those. If you adulterated it up, am I right? Oh yeah, definitely. All right. So, well, Vera, using your literary degree, you came across a very good point and I'd like to end on that. All right. I'm going to, I'll talk about that Redeem real quick. this book from a literary standpoint, won't you? All right. Because so, I was so fucking turned off by this book that I tuned out. <laughs> you actually realized that there was kind of a through line and I'd like you to share that now. Okay. So the book opens with the suicide of Jeremiah de Saint-Amour. I don't know if anybody knows what amour means, but it means love. <laughs> So Marquez really got his hammer out to write this one. But anyway, Jeremiah kills himself because he's ailing and he writes a big letter explaining everything. And part of this letter that is addressed to Huvental talks about his uh, mistress. And Huvental gets very upset learning that his friend for so many years had a mistress. He goes and visits the mistress and all this kind of stuff. And he, throughout the day, he cannot get the idea of the secret mistress out of his mind. Huvental. He's very, very upset. He even mentions it to his wife, and his wife sort of blows it off. She's like, oh, I think it's kind of romantic that the mistress helped Mr. Love kill himself. So as the day goes on, he can't get this out of his mind. He's very distraught. He spots his parrot, who had formerly been a resident of the home, but is now in a tree. He's so bothered by the fact that the parrot is outside of the house in a tree that he climbs up. He's 81 years old. He climbs up this tree. He reaches for the parrot. He misses, and he falls and dies. And that's how the book opens. So that's the, the death of Huvental. So this is like, I don't know, first 50 pages or something. I'm reading through this whole book going, why was he so upset? What is in the letter that I missed? Why is he so, why was he so upset? We're going to learn, right? We're going to learn what else was in the letter that made him completely question everything he'd known about his good friend, Mr. Amor, Mr. Love, Mr. Love Man. So we get to the end of the book. There's nothing. There's nothing else. So I go back to the beginning of the book and I read it again. Why is he so upset? I realize that his lover is mixed race. In the middle of the book, we find out that Huvental has in fact had his own lover who is mixed race. So again, we got the hammer out to write this. And it becomes obvious that the reason he gets so upset with the parrot that leads him to his death is that the parrot is free. Huvental had been in love with his mistress and his wife, Fermina, had caught onto it like immediately. She'd literally smelled it on him. She confronts him with her, her suspicions and he tells her immediately about this mistress and her response is, well, at least you could have been a man and lied about it. But it's out now, and he has to break up with this woman, and he does. He goes, and he cuts it off with this lady, and he doesn't see her again, and that's the end of it. So that's why he was so upset. Wait, he was let so me ask you. He had to break up with her? Well, he thought he did. He thought he had to go back in his cage and spend another 30 years with this woman that he never actually loved. That was a good marriage because she was young, and her father liked him. Mm. He felt like he had to. So... I think if you're going to learn anything from this book, it's don't go back in your cage because eventually you're going to be so angry at yourself that you're going to do something stupid like chase a parrot who has more freedom than you do and fall and break your back. Did you say that's a good point? Yes. <laughs> Stay with your mistress, you know what I mean? If you if you've found real love in your life, go ahead and be with that person. Vera, of 622 fucks, how many do we give for this book? I'm going to give it a zero. Yay! <laughs>